Blog Talk Radio. So uh, a couple 
a little shuffling going on roster wise. Uh, but with, with any luck for the Mets, nothing that will really matter too much other than the, you know, pleasant surprise of seeing Juan Lagares uh, back, back with the team. Yeah, and it kind of makes sense, you know, they, instead of going with Melky, they're going with a familiar face. Uh, so we'll see how that plays out, and hopefully, you know, he can find some, some uh, Ligaris magic again. Uh, and what's going on with Marcus Stroman right now with the calf tighteners? Uh, pretty much all we know is that. He's got a tight calf. He hasn't pitched since, uh, you know what, actually, let me pull up the list real quick here, but it had been a while I started to notice yesterday, but he most recently pitched five days ago today. So he would have been due for another outing today if he kept on a five-day schedule. He is not doing that. Uh, and really, we don't know when he's going to come back. Uh, it sounds like, you know, Luis Rojas all week has been hesitant to spell out any of his rotation behind Jacob deGrom. We know the who. We just don't know the in what order. Um, Stroman, Porcello, Waka will be in there. I mean, uh, excuse me, Matt Porcello Waco will be in there. Stroman is up in the air right now. Frankly, I would bet Steven Matt's pitches Saturday in game two against the Braves. Uh, but we're going to see how it plays out. I don't know how serious Marcus Stroman's leg issue is, uh, but the Mets don't exactly have a lot of confidence-inspiring depth starter options behind him if he misses, you know, one turn or more. And that's the thing, um, <laughs> you know, Corey Oswalt, Corey Oswalt, excuse me, does, does not really inspire uh, much faith. And I want to go around the horn before we, before I, you know, I get into the thick of it. Um, let's start with, uh, with Mike and see if he has any questions, because uh, I'm sure we're going to talk a little bit about the starting rotation overall. Well, we have no Syndergaard. Uh, Marcus Stroman obviously is presently compromised and he talks a good game. I don't see Philadelphia's ballpark working in Zach Wheeler's favor, although I wish he was still here with the Mets. Uh, and then, as you guys mentioned, there's Mats, there's Porcello, there's Walker. After the Grom, my question is, who is the number two? And in a 60-game season, are we going to need and depend on somebody to be a number two pitcher for this team, considering the limited amount of uh, competitors the Mets will be facing. Who is the number two? Oh, no, no, that's for you. Go go ahead, Tim. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, by all means. Stroman, on paper, Stroman is the number two starter, at least in my order as far as I'm concerned. I, I, I don't really get too caught up in what order they get rolled out in, but, you know, if you just based on merit, Stroman's the number two starter. I hear I hear what you're saying about him talking a big game. Um, I agree. Uh, and then behind them, it's Matz and then Porcello and then Waka. That's how I would slot them. Um, even though it's a short season, I still think you you need somebody to step up in that number two spot and be really good if you're going to make a run. Now, in March and last year and the year before that, it was supposed to be slash could have been Noah Syndergaard, but he's been hurt and or not very good for most of that time and obviously isn't going to pitch at all this year. Um, so that makes Marcus Stroman, Stephen Matz, all the more important. Now, 
I look at Matt as sort of an X factor in this rotation because we've seen stretches from him over, let's say, 12 starts, which is what the Mets will need from him this year. We've seen 12 start stretches of Steven Matt when he is really good. <laughs> so if, if he can fix some of the problems he had last year in the first inning with his emotions, things like that, things we things that have been discussed a lot in recent years, then it would be within the realm of possibility. I'm not saying it's likely, but it's within the realm of possibility that that Matt could be that really legitimate number two starter, uh, which would be a great scenario for the Mets, uh, especially if Marcus Stroman pitches something like his regular self. Um, But the overall point is that the Mets rotation right now isn't the strength of it isn't the strong, stable of flamethrowing arms that it has been for, you know, the past half decade or so that, since, they, since they made the World Series run in 2015. Uh, Harvey's long gone. Wheeler's gone. Syndergaard's out for the, out for the year. Uh, it, all of a sudden now, if you look at this rotation compared to what it was in the second half last year when the Mets were going really good, you're replacing Syndergaard and Wheeler – with Porcello and Waka, and nothing against Porcello and Waka, who have had great seasons in the past, but that's a steep drop-off. And the Mets are going to need some other things to go their way to make up that ground. Yeah, I, you know, I don't even really want to get into um, right off the bat, like thinking about exactly that. Rich, go go ahead. I'm I'm gonna. I, I had something else in my head, but I, I kind of. Uh, Lost So, Rich, do you have anything for Tim? Well, hey, Tim, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, good. So, I agree with everything you said about the rotation. You know, it's funny. This might be paradoxical, but if you really think about it, the short season actually tests the rotation, I think, more because mm. you can't hide these guys. You know, you, you, you're not going to be able to skip your fifth starter. And you're not going to be able to live with getting three innings out of these guys because you're playing 60 games in 66 days. You're going to tax the living heck out of your bullpen. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't have that. You're going to need five solid starters to get through this sprint. And and people are saying, well, you know, that's that's paradoxical, but it really isn't. You know, you you don't have the off days built into the schedule and, and, you know, to do this. So it's such a short sprint and so compact. So I agree with everything you said. I mean, um, I think the rotation is thin with Stroman, uh, without for even a, a one or two start miss. Now you're now oof, you're getting in you're getting into Corey Oswalt. I mean, come on, you know, Walter right. Lockett, who's who's just as bad, who is now unavailable anyway. Where are you going to go? I mean, you know, I, thank goodness Chris Flexen is gone, and thank goodness Drew Gagne is gone. But but you don't have quality depth here, and and that's a, it's a problem I, again with. With Stroman, I thought they would be challenged. Without, I think they're even more challenged. Um, but the one thing I wanted to ask you is um, with the release of Beckham today, so obviously they brought Beckham here for a reason. They brought Beckham here, backup infielder. You know, they, they obviously perceived the need. Do you think they would have any interest in Josh Harrison, who was just released, for the same purpose of, you know, being a backup infielder but also someone who could you know you could plug in in the outfielder here and they're sort of like a super utility guy with the release of Beckham yeah I I would think they at least kick the tires on that depending on internally what they perceive their own needs to be 
Josh Harrison does fill that. Basically, what you described as Josh Harrison's potential use is more or less how they see Eduardo Nunes or how they did see him before spring training got shut down. I think it was March 11th, the day before MLB called it, that Luis Rojas was talking about how they were going to see Nunez in the outfield a little bit. In addition to second base, third base, a little bit of shortstop, which frankly doesn't really have the range for anymore. Um, but if you can add outfield to that mix, then that's a potentially useful player at the end of the bench. Um, and Josh Harrison is in more or less the same mold. Um, when you talk about Harrison versus Dozier, there is a little bit less versatility with Dozier, but I think he's also, you know, w- w- without knowing Josh Harrison's offensive numbers off the top of my head, I, I, I have to say that Dozier's a better hitter in the majors in recent years. Um, you know, Harrison was so, so good for those couple of years with the Pirates and, you know, has long been linked to the Mets and trade rumors at various points, but uh, for the purposes of upgrading from Gordon Beckham, which is what they seem to have done here with Dozier, I think Dozier does just fine with that. Thank you. So I remember I was going to bring up about how some, uh, uh, you know, you mentioned Matt Harvey. Some fans were talking about kicking the tires with Harvey. I really don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. Um, but I, in terms of the rotation, and I have some other questions about some of the other pl- uh, players uh, in the rotation, but is Matt Harvey still out there? Has he signed with anybody? He was pitching, uh, and I'm, I'm sure with, there, there might be some news out there. Uh, Matt Harvey is, is still available, still a free agent. Um, the Mets have no interest as far as I know, and I, that did pop up at some point during quarantine, but I think it's worth remembering that Matt Harvey hasn't been a good uh, major league pitcher since 2015, and it is 2020 now. So uh, there's just I'd be absolutely floored if Matt Harvey ended up back with the Mets between him not being very good and the history there. It just doesn't make any sense on any level. So uh, I'm not into that idea. Yeah, I agree. I'm not into that idea, and I was just kind of curious whether anybody else had picked him up. I know last year he he had been signed by Sandy Alderson, basically, for the A's, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I guess that just went to the wayside. But uh, Rick Porcello, uh, I want to, you know, let's let's start with Rick Porcello when talking about this weekend and what the Mets looked like, the good, the bad, and the ugly. First, you know, let's start with Rick Porcello. How did he look out there? How did he look? Um, he looked like he was a veteran starter going through spring training, which is to say he looked fine and healthy and he got his innings in. And other than that, I don't think it it really matters. (laughs) You know, it's hard enough to evaluate a given player based on their spring training performance or numbers. And it's even harder this year in after the layoff in intra-squad games where, you know, results just don't really matter. So, uh, you know, Priscilla has had a couple. It's coming off a few rough years. Uh, but what the upside for him is that he is durable. He has been a 30 starts just about every year guy for going on a decade. So uh, that is actually more than a decade, really. That's the, what the Mets see in him. 
they think they can improve upon his five and a half ERA from last year. And if the Mets are going to do anything, he's going to need to improve upon that. Um, so he should be pretty dependable every five days. Um, performance wise though, it's hard to know until you actually see it in games that matter. You know, I got to think though, that in a, in a 60 game sprint and, and I'll go to you next Mike on the, on Rick Barcello, you know, he could really, uh, come through in a clutch. He really can, and I'm conflicted because uh, I'm also a Red Sox fan, uh, and I was proud of what he did in Boston. Uh, he was surprisingly effective, uh, pitched above beyond my expectations, and he was an important member and component to what they achieved. Here with the Mets, I'm not so sure that's going to translate, and I'm not blaming it on age. Uh, it's just that that green monster saves and keeps a lot of line drives in the ballpark. Uh, you know, uh, that's an awfully deep and eccentric center field they have in center field. Uh, but may, perhaps I'm just uh, imagining things and, and, and uh, you know, overthinking this. I hope he does well. Honestly, uh, anything above par and pedestrian, I will gladly accept. Rich, I'll round it out with you with Rick Porcella. Well, you know, AL Cy Young in 2016, uh, bad 17, slight bounce, you know, bounce back, nice bounce back in 18, bad 19. Uh, uh, you know, what is he, 30, 31 now, something like that. Um, I'll, I think if, if the Mets get a decent season out of him, you have to take it to the bank. I think expectations of a really good season, as I would define as maybe, I don't know what, you know, nine and three with a 3.5 ERA. I don't hope, I don't think that's realistic. I, I think if the Mets get something more in line with, you know, like, five and four with a 4.1 ERA that that's probably a decent ask. And I would sign for that. Um, so with Porcello, my hope is for league average, maybe slightly better than that. Um, and, and I think that's realistically what, what we could strive for. I don't think we're going to strive for the Cy Young award winning Rick Porcello. That's a good goal. League average or better. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. Right. No, and, you know, there is a possibility that he could fall in line behind Jacob DeGrom. But, you know, what, what we're hoping for is exactly what you guys just said. Uh, so, Tim, what, what, like, should we really take anything away from what happened this weekend against the Yankees? Uh, what did you see out there when watching these games? What I saw, well, it sort of connects to what I said earlier, where it's hard enough to read into spring training, spring training games to begin with. But when it's only two and it's under these circumstances, then it's even harder. But I will say two things that have stayed with me three days later are Seth Lugo looked terrific, which we've all come to expect from Seth Lugo, one of the best relievers in baseball. And Hunter Strickland really impressed me with his one inning Sunday night at Yankee Stadium. They met have a, you know, probably three or four bullpen spots up for grabs. And it's a lot of the same names that we've seen come and go in recent years. Paul Seawald, Tyler Bashler, Daniel Zamora, Drew Smith is back in the mix after missing last year with Tommy John. 
But Hunter Strickland, who's a journeyman now, in, in camp on a minor league deal, had second and third with nobody out and retired the next three batters without, allow, without allowing a run. So that was really impressive. I think it caught the eye of Luis Rojas and the, the coaching staff. So wouldn't surprise me if Strickland is able to nab one of those spots. But, again, that's you know, way down toward the bottom of the roster um, you know, 27th, 28th, 29th man type stuff. So um, as far as bigger picture takeaways from the Yankees exhibitions, I didn't have a ton other than it is good to have baseball back. <laughs> yeah, that that's for sure. And I'll go around and let's start with Hunter Strickland and then your observations of what happened this weekend, Mike. Um, I, Hunter Strickland very much impressed me. And the second that I saw that he was in the Mets ranks, there's two things that went through my head. Uh, one, Hunter Strickland's a Met now. And two, uh, wow, he looks rather good. And, and I, I think he could easily be a sleeper hit. And, and it looks like, you know, he's, he knows where he is at this point in his career. Like, he's fighting. I'm going to stay pragmatic about this. You know, that's a snapshot in time. Uh, the more the merrier. We need bullpen home. And as Rich alluded to, uh, the bullpen is going to play a major role in any success that the Nets may have this season. But what I'm going to do, Tim, is throw you a change-up. Change-up. We're going to keep it in the bullpen. But, you know, the Mets have a couple of 600-pound gorillas in the room, and Edwin Diaz is one of them. So I'm going to, set this, this, so I'm going to set this up this way. Taking a look back at Edwin Diaz while he was with Seattle, his saves were, you know, somewhat well scattered and spread throughout his competition. That being said, the American League West and Central was somewhat pedestrian. Uh, to your knowledge, have the Mets done anything differently with Diaz designed to unleash the pitcher from 2018? I mean, after all, a career-high 15 home runs and only 58 innings pitch was absurd. And the Mets have no choice but to rely on this person. And, you know, Hunter Strickland is indeed a great story to date. But the onus still falls on Diaz. That's absolutely right. We can talk about Hunter Strickland and the others all we want, but... It is Edwin Diaz and his fellow question marks, Jerry Familia and Dylan Batances, who are going to make, make or break the bullpen and perhaps the entire season for the Mets. As far as specifics on what the Mets are doing with Diaz, uh, they talk about you know being able to locate a slider, smoothing out a couple things mechanically, um, all the usual almost kind of cliché, stuff you expect to hear about when a pitcher is struggling. Uh, so the talk is good, you know, trying to improve is good, but it doesn't actually matter unless you actually improve, unless those things actually help you in games. And fortunately, we're going to get to find out soon if, if all that work he put in over the off season and spring training and the hiatus is going to pay off. Um, I, it's, seems so long ago now, but back in January it was at FanFest, Edwin Diaz spoke about how he got some advice from Pedro Martinez, of all people. And if I'm a pitcher, I'm, I'm not even a pitcher, 
but I would love to get advice from Pedro Martinez on virtually <laughs> anything, but, but yeah. especially pitching. So uh, may, maybe that will become relevant again uh, come, come regular season in a couple of days. So uh, specifically with Diaz, I can't point to one thing and say, oh, this is one reason to believe that he'll be better this year. Unlike Jerry's Familia, for example, who did lose all that weight, who is throwing a curveball again for the first time in five or six years. And those are specific things where we can point to Familia and say, okay, he stunk last year, but he has a good track record. And here's reason Y and reason X to believe that he will rebound. With Diaz, you're more or less just hoping that last year was a fluke and that his very fast fastball and his very good slider and his very good strikeout rate all mean better things this year than they did last year. And do you think that some of the way the games went from a, a final standpoint, uh, you know, they've been talking about how the pitchers are ahead of the batters. Um, do you think that, that like from the Mets offensive standpoint, the hitters were just really behind uh, the eight ball? Um, and, and that the, the, the pitching was kind of just like some of the lackluster names like Corey Oswald and such. I'm sorry. Can you say that again? Oh, no, I I said, do you think that, you know, they were talking about that the pitchers seem to be generally in spring training ahead of the, the the pitchers were ahead of the hitters. Um, Do you think that some of what happened this weekend in the actual game action for the Mets, do you think that, like, some of what what ended up being the final with the Yankees winning both games uh, had to do with the the offense being a little behind uh, while, like, some of the pitchers out there were, like, pitchers like Corey Oswald? Uh, probably a little bit of both. The, the idea that pitchers are ahead of hitters is normal in baseball in early spring training. And, it, and it's worth remembering, again, that even though camp is ending today, essentially, that it's still in a normal spring training, still, you know, what, maybe halfway through spring training. So the hitters, maybe more so than the pitchers, definitely more so than the relievers, are, had to speed through things in terms of finding their timing at the plate. As Brandon Nimmo put it the other day, it's always an ongoing process of trying to find and maintain your timing at the plate. So if when the regular season starts, the, it, and this isn't just a Mets thing, it's, it's a baseball, if pitchers are still dominating more regularly, that wouldn't really surprise me. But in the case of the Yankees exhibitions, and those results, I think it can be chalked up in part to the Yankees lineup being really, really good, especially Sunday night when they rolled out almost their regular entire starting lineup. Um, it's, uh, it, it, you, you saw it. Judge hit two home runs. Giancarlo Stanton, Luke Voigt, Gary Sanchez all hit home runs, and that's just sort of what the Yankees are built for right now. Um, they're going to score a lot of runs and probably get, make a pretty good run in the playoffs. Um, and then when you factor it too, that Corey, it was Corey Oswalt, not Jacob DeGrom starting on Sunday. And then a whole slew of bullpen arms, a lot of them, uh, trying out for the roster, trying to win a spot. Um, then when you when you combine those two things, uh, you get what you get on Sunday. 
Yeah, I think I think that's definitely the case. And I, I wanted to wait a little bit to go down the uh, the ownership rabbit hole, but I think this is a good direction since we're talking about the dichotomy of the Yankees and the Mets. Um, yeah. And I I think that. That's something that, you know, as much as everybody thinks the Mets are talented, um, you're just still reminded during games like that of what the Wilpons era has been like and how they've just generally been behind everything and and always trying to, you know, like like Jeff Wilpon handing that underdog T-shirt out and thinking that you can just kind of go with that with you know, with the the underwhelming rosters and and the underwhelming uh, way that you're you're manipulating uh, the operations. So I you know I, I it, where, where do you think the ownership uh, thing stands right now? Obviously, everybody seems to be rooting for Steve Cohen, and 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 you know what do you, what do you think in terms of what I said about the dichotomy of it all, seeing it between the you know two games at City Field and the Yankee Stadium. Yeah, I mean, this isn't news to Mets fans, but the difference between the Yankees and Mets starts at ownership, right? And I think we saw it this offseason where the Mets were mediocre last year, right? Good second half. We're in the wild card mix. Never really had a spot, though. Uh, ultimately, a little better than 500. So, and what did they do in the offseason? They added Batantis, they added a couple of back end starters, and, you know, pretty much called it a day. Whereas the Yankees won more than 100 games, were really close to going to the World Series, and then added Garrett Cole, of all people. Um, so, and that, and that those, the offseason agenda starts at ownership. And if and when Mets ownership changes, and every sign is that it is going to change, that's a chance for a paradigm shift for the Mets. Everything that we know about the Mets as they exist right now starts with the Wilpons and their frugalness and maybe their lack of money and Madoff and how they want people to play through injuries and all the circus environment, all the stupid stories that have happened through the years start at the top. And if that changes, when that changes, it'll be a chance for everything else to change with it as well. The Wilpons have told people that they want to close on a sale of the Mets by the end of the year. So, with any luck for Mets fans, this is the start of the final Will Pond season. Um, you mentioned Steve Cohen. He's obviously in the mix. He is the front runner. Um, when you combine financial ability on, on one hand and personal interest in owning the Mets specifically on the other hand, nobody can come close to matching him in either of those two areas. That's why he's the favorite. The other groups, of course, are A-Rod and J-Lo and their bunch of investors. I'm personally skeptical of them, have been from the start. Um, I I don't think they have enough money to compete with Steve Cohen. And even if they do scrape up the money to win the team, it's really questionable how much money they'll have to operate the team. Um, You could get a situation like the Marlins where – Bruce Sherman and Derek Jeter eventually bought the Marlins a couple of years ago and then significantly cut payroll and traded everybody and essentially started over, which would be a shame with this Mets team because they've got so many good players. Um, so Steve Cohen, A-Rod and J-Lo, who I'm very skeptical of. And then the third group that we know of publicly 
is Josh Harris and David Blitzer. They are the guys who own the Philadelphia 76ers of the NBA and the New Jersey Devils of the NHL. And I would, in, in my likelihood power rankings, I would put them second behind Steve Cohen ahead of A-Rod because they have more money and they know what it's like to run a pro sports team. So uh, Steve Cohen's the favorite, but we've got probably a little ways to go there in that process. Uh, you know, we're uh, sitting here with uh, bated breath, basically. Um, Rich, I wanted to go to you, and you, you can certainly uh, take it any direction you want if you want to go with ownership or back to the roster. Well, I uh, just uh, sent you guys, Tim, you might be aware of this already. I just sent you guys something that um, Rick Porcello did not start in the squad game. It was He was replaced by Strickland, so uh, we don't know why, but we certainly can assume why. And uh, per our conversation earlier about the lack of depth, that depth might be challenged a bit more. Let's hope it's not something horrible, but, uh, but that was just released like within the last two or three minutes. So um, anyway, so with that having been said, you know, on the subject of ownership, sure, you know, we need to get the Wilpons out and another owner. But, Tim, I had a question for you on that. Um, I would agree with your force ranking of the three uh, potential suitors at this point. But what did you make of A-Rod's comment? I think I know what we all would make of it, that there needs to be a salary cap in baseball. Let me ask you about, you know, do you find any hypocrisy in that? And then secondly, what I'm seeing is obviously any owner has to be approved by the other owners. And here's A-Rod just playing right to them and saying, hey, you know, you bring me in, I'm, I'm going to vote for salary cap. And, and, right. and this, Cohen, this Cohen guy over here, he's had some problems. You don't want that guy. You know? And then these two guys here, well, they own other sports franchises, so get rid of them. Uh, but pick me because I want a salary cap. Is that how you see it? Uh, yeah. I, that, I interpreted that stuff from A-Rod as, you know, even thinly veiled, to call it thinly veiled would be to give it too much credit. It, it was transparently uh, essentially pleading to the owners, trying to gain favor with them. And you mentioned hypocrisy, <laughs> just immense hypocrisy for a guy who signed those contracts and power to him. You know, he yep. deserves those contracts and they worked out great for the, well, the Rangers at first got great value, then they traded him, then the Yankees got great value on that contract and his next one. Uh, even even considering how the contract ended with him getting suspended and barely being able to play at the end, it, it worked out great for basically everybody involved. Um, you know, A-Rod got those big contracts, and there are some owners out there who would say, eh, no player is worth that much money, except – you know, look at the numbers, and he was pretty clearly worth the money in those scenarios. And now all of a sudden he wants to be an owner. He wants to compete with Derek Jeter, and he's in favor of a salary cap, which is just, you know, first of all, I, you know, you can never say never, but you can almost say never when it comes to the players' union and a salary cap. Um, the owners are going to push for that probably when CBA <laughs> talks start in about a year, but I can't imagine that the own that the union will be uh interested in even entertaining the idea um so yeah a-rod was uh pretty clearly trying to curry favor with that and uh you know i for a guy who a few years ago was suspended for drugs and sued rob manfred and mlb and the players union uh 
probably stand to curry from curry some favor. <laughs> Jeez. So here's my question then. You know, you look at something like the Knicks, um, who have not, you know, really done well under a salary cap. Um, basically, what I'm asking is, do you think it matters from sport to sport, or do you think that salary caps in general don't work? What's your, what's your, uh, your opinion in general, Tim, about salary caps? I, I mean, philosophically, I'm, you know, I, I'm a baseball guy at heart. So, and football's probably second. Football's a salary cap. But I'm not, you know, hardcore in tune with the inner, with the finer details of how any other sports salary cap works. Um, but philosophically, overall, I'm against salary caps because I like an open market and capitalism and competition, right? And salary caps inherently limit that. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not in favor of salary cap in any sport. Um, baseball has done what it can to try to, you know, encourage more competition and whatnot without using a salary cap. You see that, you know, with the luxury tax for the payroll, which is basically a salary cap. Some teams treat it as a salary cap, uh, but also, you know, compensation draft picks for losing free agents, things like that. So, uh, I'm not in favor of a salary cap. I don't. I, I don't like the idea of a of an individual's earning power being limited by some made up rule. Um, so I'm not into the idea, uh, and hopefully we never see one in baseball. You know, when you look at it, Mike. <clears throat> excuse me. When you look at it, uh, you know, baseball has had probably some of the most parity of all the sports. Yep. Uh, and they have not had, yeah, they've not had a, a salary cap at all. You know, uh, um, it, it just, it, see, it seems to me like when you look at the NBA, you know what teams generally, obviously you had the Raptors recently. Um, but, yeah, I'll, I'll go to you on this. Well, the, the other leagues clearly know how to play together. Baseball owners have always been a bunch of individualists, and this argument is really 150 years old. You know, it goes way back. I'm in lockstep with Tim. You know, sports wants to be a communistic system, but I believe in survival of the fittest. If you can't afford your team, move it, sell it, or fold it. Uh, But, you know, when you talk within the context of a business and standardizing your product, that no matter where you go in the country, you know, that product is still of the same quality, you know, like Standard Oil used to make themselves out to be. Uh, it's nuanced. It's nuanced. Uh, as far as, you know, rewinding back to ownership real quick, I have two real quick comments. Uh, I, I don't trust the Will Ponds enough to not pollute negotiations over SNY. Uh, that's A. And second, you got to remember this guy's mindset. Fred Wilpon was the one who said when the Yankees acquired Giancarlo Stanton that their business model, quote, unquote, so that's the kind of mindset we're dealing with. Uh, uh, Rich, why don't, why don't we uh, go this direction? Michael Waka, <laughs> it, you know, he he went from fringe candidate to this of, of this rotation, and now we're tweeting about uh, Rick Porcello possibly being out. Could be COVID. 
Uh, and, and that's another direction we have to go uh, uh, at first. But just in terms of the idea that baseball is actually going to be played, uh, Michael Walker, you know, th- he's, he's in the, the fight for 60 games of his life. I mean, he's on a one-year deal, right? He is. Oh, he is. Yes, he is. No, go go ahead. If it, if you wanted to, you know, speak oh, on with it. Waka. Well, I mean, you know, Waka. <laughs> he's gone from being. You know, I went to the fan fest in January, and and when I was sitting there listening to him and Porcello, he he's gone from being a. He said he really wanted to be a starter, but if you know if they made him the the swing man. Okay, he's gone from swing man. And then, you know, he's gone to me with Syndergaard going down. Well, you know, he's going to be the number five starter. Stroman, number four. Um, and now Forsolo's out number three. And, um, you know, they're they're pinning a lot. You know, they, they were pinning a lot on Porcello, like, like Tim said earlier. When Syndergaard goes down and Wheeler goes to free agency and you replace them essentially, yes, Stroman was there late last year, you're essentially replacing those two guys with Porcello and Waka. You're you're asking them to do a lot. You're asking them to replace two pretty darn good pitchers, and maybe that replacement could have been, you know, on roster only. You know, they could on the roster, but not necessarily in those same spots. Well, now it's looking like those two guys are creeping that much farther up into those two spots. So, um, but think about that. You know, ruminate on that one for a moment. Think about where Walk has gone. He's gone from. Uh, swing man spot starter to maybe number three starter. Uh, of course, I'm assuming the worst of Porcello, but when you're a Mets fan, you can't do anything else. And um, <laughs> and so, you know, th- think about it. I mean, these are guys, Tim's right, and these are guys the Mets, let's face it, they kind of picked them up on the cheap. Porcello, you know, has been up and down at best. He was pretty down last year. Waka, you know, was pretty down last year. He was removed from the Cardinals rotation in May. Um, yes, these are guys who in their pasts have, have done some good things, but the Mets kind of got him on the cheap. He's, they're not Garrett Cole. And, um, and now they're, you know, in a year that they have expectations. The fans have expectations. They're pinning a lot on those two guys. Could they come through? Of course they can. Could they fall on their face? Sure they can. But that's where we are. You know, Tim, I, I'd like to have optimism. Um, but, like, there's something telling me that, that the Mets are, at best, once again, going to be a fringe playoff team. Um, and I want to believe that Louis Rojas is going to do a great job in his first season. But when you, you know, it all goes back to the idea that this was the exact same Wilpon model that we're all used to, uh, with a little Brody effect on it, um, you know. Uh, I, I think that the offense is going to come around. I think that they're going to uh, heat up at some point. Um, but I, I, I think that especially if this pitching just keeps going, uh, um, you know, I want to get into also just overall baseball when it, it, as it pertains to COVID because there was some stuff about the Blue Jays today. But just wrapping the Met part up, you know, it, 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 does, it does just feel once again like the Wilpons are just setting us up to fail. Yeah, yeah. With uh, with regard to which section of the team or organization specifically? Uh, well, uh, you know, just operational. <laughs> we always yeah. go to the COO. We always go to the COO and and the job he has done, 
as chief operating officer, which is a made up name, by the way, that's the president right. of operations. Every other team, you know, <laughs> it, it's, there's nobody else called the COO. And, and it's just, it's remarkable. This, this made up job that he created, but anyway, you know, just in, in terms, in terms of the Mets going in here, I, I, I think, I, I don't want to think that it could be a disaster, but I, I don't know whether the offense is going to be able to make up for what could be disastrous pitching, both on the bullpen side and, you know, within the, the pitching ranks, especially if Luke Corey Oswald has to go out there. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment of things. The lineup could be good. Um, and you're looking, and, and I say could if, you know, Alonzo and McNeil are all-star caliber players again. If J.D. Davis proves his breakout last year was not a fluke. If Dominic Smith, same thing. If Cespedes is healthy, right? There, there are a lot of good if Robinson Cano rebounds. Um, if Brandon Nimmo rebounds and stays healthy for that matter. But, so the, the, there's a ton of potential in the lineup. Could be a terrific lineup. But you look at all the question marks on the pitching side and potentially a couple more question marks to today, depending on what's going on with Stroman and Porcello. And it's not really, uh, you know, it's all of a sudden there, there aren't a lot of sure things and you don't know if the lineup can cover for that many potential issues with the pitching. And of course, this is all in theory. Still, we get to see how it actually plays out, which is the beauty of baseball COVID pending. Um, so, uh, a Mets team that did not have that, that did not, um, have a strength in pitching already is now facing potentially some more issues. And in the 60 game season, as we've alluded to previously, um, you know, a, a would be minor injury can cost you a quarter of the season, maybe half the season, you know, time is going to run out quick here for not just the Mets, but everybody. But, um, but the, the Mets, especially if they're dealing with a couple new issues as of today. Mike, maybe this is the death knell. The Wilpons last season is just like the 14th inning of 2010 when Oliver Perez was thrown out there to say goodbye to Jerry Manuel's era. Maybe what we're about to see is the worst year the Wilpons have ever had outside of 1993. <laughs> well, the giant question is, how are they going to manage it, right? So, Tim, my question to you uh, involves Luis Rojas, first-year manager okay. for the Mets. Uh, there's an old adage that when you go into the playoffs and you play a short season, you either change the way you manage or you stick with what got you there. So here we are with a short season. Does Luis Rojas manage 60 games conventionally? And then, you know, heaven willing, we get into the playoffs. Or does he uh, change things up and manages with a a short-term goal point of view or mindset? I expect Rojas to manage conventionally. you know, it, it's come up a couple times during camp, but he's been asked, you know, because it's a 60-game season, because you won't be asked, you won't be asking your starting pitchers for too much innings total-wise, of course, since it's such a short year. 
might you, you know, use a four-man rotation or use the starters out of the bullpen on their throw day like you sometimes see in the playoffs? And his answer is always basically, not not really. (laughs) So uh, because he's a rookie manager, we don't really have a baseline to compare him to. You know, if we saw him last year and then all of a sudden this year in 60 games he was doing things differently, then, yeah, sure, we could say, uh, okay, he he's adapting to the 2020 circumstances. But um, we don't have the benefit of that knowledge base. So, I, I all, all things considered, I expect Rojas a pretty conventional manager. Um, but, you know, we're going to find out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my question for you also it re- regards the new rule changes and whether you've talked to any of the players about them, what their feelings are on it. Uh, well, everybody to whom it is relevant seems to like having the DH and the NL. With the Mets in particular, their roster is built for it. They have about five guys who could be the regular DH on other teams, you know, from Davis to Cespedes, Cano, Alonzo, work Dom in there probably at first base if Alonzo DHs. But the Mets have options there. And they're fitting so many square defensive pegs into round offensive holes, or maybe vice versa, um, that they benefit immensely from having, being able to use the DH spot. Uh, as far as the other ones, you know, this year we're seeing the three batter minimum which threatens the existence of lefty specialists. The Mets signed Jason Shreve to, an, uh, to a minor league deal. He's a left-hander, but he has pretty good numbers against righties in his career. So they don't really see him as somebody who is affected by the three-batter rule. Um, and, and the, the fact that there is the three-batter rule made him a little more appealing. Uh, you know, Daniel Zamora is another lefty specialist type of guy. He's been trying to get better, you know, you know, working on, you know, he, he's mostly a slider guy, throws it something like 70% of the time, which is just absurd. Uh, got the funky delivery too. But for Daniel Zamora to establish himself as a legitimate major leaguer, he's going to have to be able to get right-handed betters out. So that's something worth watching this year. Um what are the other things? We got the DH, the three batter minimum. What other rules? The, uh, the extra rule, the extra inning, extra inning. Oh yeah, honestly, I don't know any baseball people who like that rule. <laughs> uh, I, I, they've tested it in the they've tested it in the minors for the last couple of years. So Rojas has a bit of experience with it, as well as in international play. Um, so perhaps there is an advantage there for Rojas over his major league managerial peers. Um, But man, of all the things that could stand to improve in baseball, this doesn't fix any of them, right? There there are obvious pace of play issues. Baseball games take too long and they take longer basically every year. But the problem is not extra innings games that sometimes drag on for hours and hours, right? Those, those, outliers are some of the most memorable games you'll watch because things get weird. And if you play for 14, 15, 18 innings, that's something you're going to remember. 
Um, this, for this year, with the health considerations, the short spring, the compact season, I can kind of sort of buy into it. You don't want people playing all night in extra innings. So I kind of get it. But, man, I just hope that doesn't become a, a regular thing in baseball. That would be, be a bummer and weird and bad. <laughs> Yeah, I would. Uh, I totally agree with you. And um, before I, I'm going to pass it on to you, Rich, to see if you have one last question before my last question. But uh, Rich, before you you uh, take it away, I just want to say, like, hearing names like uh, Shreve and Daniel Zamora, it just reminds me these are like Wilpon names, like Miguel Acosta and and whatnot. Like the, these are these are names. I just hope I never have to hear again. I think I've said this recently. Is that for me or Tim? You, you, Rich. And, and if you have any questions uh, for Tim before my last one. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I mean, there are some names that keep surfacing, and, and we have to ask ourselves why. You know, actually, I have hope for Zamora, even though he looked horrible uh, over the weekend. I have hope for him as a, as a situational lefty, you know, to come in and get people out, you know, in the middle of the game, maybe get out a key lefty. You know, I think about a Bryce Harper. I think about a Freddie Freeman. <laughs> And I know that's a big ask for a guy like Samora, but I do like his style. You know, he has that, that fadeaway slider against the lefties that hopefully can be effective, so I do have some hope for him. But, but you know, part of, part of this whole thing is really, and, you know, we joked about it earlier, is addition by subtraction. You know, the Mets have to move on from these guys who, you know, how many more chances can you give Flexen and Gagne? Well, granted, they're gone. How many more chances can you give Oswald? You know, how many more chances can you give – these other guys in the bullpen and, um, you know, and, and keep trying to patch it together. You know, sometimes you just have to cut bait and move on. So, uh, so that would be my comment on that. And Tim, I guess, you know, my final question for you would be they, with the moves today, uh, bringing in Dozier and Ligaris, you know, from what I'm hearing, obviously neither is ready and they won't be on the, the opening day roster. So, but what exactly Maybe you can help me understand what exactly is going on with this 60-man player pool. So you, you've got 30 guys who will make the team for Friday, and then that goes to 20, um, 28, then it goes to 26, you know, two weeks, two weeks. Okay, everybody gets that. These other guys, they're going to go to Brooklyn, and they're going to be, you know, playing, playing inter-squad games, stay loose on the diamond. But the, other, the part I, I really don't understand is there's still a 40-man roster. So if you have a 60-man player pool, and let, let's say somebody gets hurt, you either can obviously bring somebody up from your 40-man roster, or you could DFA somebody in the 40-man roster and grab somebody off the player pool. Is that kind of what's going to happen? Yes. The 30 players or so, you know, the non-active roster, all those extra guys on the player pool, they'll be in Brooklyn playing scrimmages or – you know, doing whatever baseball activities and workouts. And that, that just essentially replaces the upper minors in this pandemic season. Um, so in order to be added to the active roster, you have to be in the player pool and on the 40-man roster, and then you can be added to the active roster. So it is an extra layer of complication this year, just in terms of transactions and paperwork and, you know, understanding and things like that. Um, but that's essentially what teams are working with this year. They can, if, if they, they can take players off the 60 man player pool and add 
current and add new ones to it, just like the Mets did today with Lagaris and uh, Dozier. Um, but if the Mets want to use any of those, either of those guys in games, they would have to be added to the 40-man roster as well, and then the active roster. So uh, it's definitely it's definitely complicated and. I really hope there's a vaccine because I don't want to have to deal with this next year too. <laughs> so add that to the list of reasons we need a COVID-19 vaccine. Amen. Amen. And, and there's good news on that front. This isn't a show about medicine, but, but there's good news on that front. You know, hopefully you saw it today. So hopefully we can have one season of this nonsense. Yeah. So, you know, speaking of which, um, let's go, let's go to overall baseball. And I think it, it shows another one of Rob Manfred's follies. Uh, first Canada says no to Toronto playing. Uh, then Pittsburgh says no to Toronto playing because they don't want to do it in Buffalo because of the, you know, it's a minor league facility and the lights and stuff or something like that. So I guess my question to you is, are we going to actually play this thing? The season or the, the Blue Jays season? The season, yeah. Like, like, is this thing actually going to get get you know off the ground? Because you keep running into these roadblocks, and COVID is spiking in certain places, and and nobody yeah. wants to go to Florida. Nobody wants to play in Florida, and and now, I, I, uh, unless anybody's seen anything since we started, it, Toronto's still up in the air. Like, what, Toronto, do you, what, do you, what is your humble opinion about whether they're going to finish this thing? Whether the, quest, whether the season is played to completion is a gigantic question right now. And I'm glad you brought it up because we haven't mentioned it in this hour. Uh, that the season is going to get off the ground, but it's, not, it's far from a certainty that it is going to make its entire sex, successful flight and land at, land at its destination. Um, any, you know, basically nobody knows. They're, they're going to play until they can't play. And there aren't any known hard and fast thresholds of, okay, this many players out due to COVID is too many. Or what happens if there's an outbreak on a team and that team can't play its game? There aren't, there aren't any known public contingency plans for that stuff. Never mind the Blue Jays situation, which is, probably the biggest disaster of all this so far, baseball-wise. Uh, I'm rooting for Buffalo where they can just go play day games, but we'll see how it sorts out. Um, so you're right. In this pandemic season, the pandemic is the operative word there, more so than season, because it's going to be the coronavirus and the testing rates that determine how long the season go, go on. Coming into camp, there were a lot of people in the base in baseball who were not especially confident in baseball's plan and baseball's chances of completing its season. The Mets from their camp have been all, you know, rose colored glasses. Can't say enough good things about how seriously the Mets are doing, are handling everything, but also there they are crammed into the dugout, not using the stands, high fiving, not socially distancing. So any number of things could go wrong with this season. And, uh, you know, it's just entirely unpredictable how, how it's going to go. I, as I wrote in Newsday's baseball season preview section, which everybody can read at Newsday.com, uh, the old cliche that you can't predict baseball 
which is cliche because it's true, but the idea that you can't predict baseball is somehow even more true this year um, in so many ways, and the coronavirus is definitely the biggest of those ways. So I'm going to pass it over to you, Mike, uh, before we go to our final word, if you have anything else. Well, I I do have uh, a double-barrel question, but here we are. Welcome to the wacky world of sports in 2020 with regard to Toronto, Major League Baseball, and the plan. Sam, you know me. I can only refer back to the seven Ps. And what are they? Proper prior planning prevents his poor performance. That being said, the logistics of this just seem daunting. So I don't know if there's a right way to go about this. I wish everyone luck, including you, Tim. Uh, This is going to be strange as the year in its entirety has been to date. Anyway, my my last question before we go to our final words, and I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Very quickly, Wilson Ramos, a 60-game season. Will it have a negative effect on him because it's going to be more intense or will it be a positive thing for him this season? A. B, I'll just say Robinson Cano, and if you can share anything that comes to mind, please. With Ramos, I'm not sure that it really affects him in any direction because a lot lot like pitchers, even though you are asking less of him on the whole, right, you – Say you ask him to catch 40 of 60 games. Um, Normally you could ask him to catch 100 games. He can't go and catch 50 or 55 just because he won't have to eventually get to 100. You still have to give him breathers along the way. So I'm not, uh, you know, I I don't think it'll really affect him in either direction. That said, it sort of gets lost in his hitting streak and his RBI tendencies last year. But offensively, Wilson Ramos took a step back last year relative what, to what he had done in the years prior. So uh, I don't see catcher as a strength for the Mets. He's not good defensively, right? We can just say that. We can put it plainly, not beat around the bush. And last year he slid a little bit offensively. So we're going to see what he has now that he's, you know, 32, about to turn 33. Um, and then Robinson Cano, even more so, uh, this is a huge prove year for Cano. Last year was bad, but he finished better than he was earlier, right? But he still, after this year, has three more years on his contract, $24 million a year, a massive investment for the Mets still, and massive investment for whoever is paying his salary, Steve Cohen or otherwise, uh, you know, starting in the next few months. Um, the, the question exists. Is was Robinson Cano in 2019 just a down year because of maybe some injuries or was that the beginning of his decline? And everybody declines eventually. And he is 37, which is a perfectly acceptable age to decline. Um, So if he is on the way down, that would be normal and not unexpected, but it would be pretty unfortunate for the Mets who are paying him a lot of money for three more years. Um, so this is a very important year for Cano where we'll get another – we'll get more data essentially to figure out whether it's a decline or just an off year last year. 
You know, Tim, there's just so many different ans- uh, questions and, uh, you know, hopefully answers at some point that will be revealed. But, uh, you know, I, we greatly appreciate you joining us today on the Metzian podcast. But I, I'd be remiss if I uh, didn't ask you what it was like to not have fans in the stands this weekend. It was it was really weird. Uh, they piping in that fake crowd noise. I don't know how it plays on TV because I haven't watched the game on TV yet, but in person, I don't like it. It sounds like a video game, and that's because MLB literally got the sound from MLB the show and gave it to the uh, the teams to use over the PA <laughs> systems. Uh, and you know, so, so I don't like the crowd noise, and I, th- I think it's funny to watch, and it will continue to be funny to watch how teams go about handling in-stadium stuff with no fans there, right? They're still doing the anthem. They're still doing walk-up songs. But the Mets, for example, between innings on Saturday night against the Yankees, played on the video board old footage of fans dancing in the stands having fun. Right? And it was just so weird because there was – it was a normal sight to see that on the video board. But – there's nobody in the stands, so it's clearly old footage. And it, why are you playing that? Who are you playing it for? And it, it's just so weird. You have to, have you recorded every? It's also like have they recorded every single piece of that? Like like or right. just have they only collected a few, or is it completely recorded somewhere? All of it, like question. every single one they've collected since City Field started. <laughs> yeah. And and then the Yankees on Sunday night still did God Bless America in the seventh inning, which is great. But then they also still did uh, take me out to the ball game. <laughs> it's just like, who, who are you doing this for? You know, I, I'm not going to get up and stretch. You know, right, exactly, exactly. Uh, so it, it, it's pretty weird. The Red Sox played Sweet Caroline still the other night I saw on Twitter. So <laughs> no, no fans in, in stadiums is really bizarre. Um, so, uh you know, hopefully next year we can get back to fans in the stands. That's that's what I'll say, I guess. Well, hopefully, and you know, Hal Steinbrenner is hoping that something can happen at the end of September. But yeah, we'll see about that. Um, I'm not holding my breath. Go, exactly. Me, me neither. Before we go to you, Tim, first, let's go to uh, our two with our uh, final word first. Mike Lacolant, what's going on? What is your final word? I will. I will put it this way. Uh, to you, Tim, your peers and comrades, to everyone involved with Major League Baseball, and everyone behind the scenes, uh, meaning the workhorse and etc. cetera, uh, I, I bid you all safety, health, luck, and peace through what is a challenging journey to come. Thank you very much. Welcome. And, Rich, what is your final word? Well, uh, same, Tim, stay healthy, mask up, all that stuff. Um, and I guess I'm going to say this. I'm going to say, and maybe Tim or Sam or Mike want to jump back in, comment on it. I do think they'll finish the season. Um, I really do. And I'm going to say that in that finished season, the Mets will – I'm until the news today on Porcello, I was thinking wild card. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to say the Mets do make the postseason – as the second wild card, and I'll leave it at that. I won't go any further with predictions, but um, I think the Mets will be above 500 and qualify for the postseason. So that that's my thought as we are a little more than 24 hours from the beginning of baseball season. 
So, Tim, uh, I will go to you. And first off, thank you again for joining us on the Metzian podcast. And there's three things I will ask from you here. I will ask uh, for your shameless plug, which you did uh, well at some point in the podcast. Um, I will ask for your prediction. I will ask for you, yes, I will will ask for your Mets prediction, and I will ask for your final word. And what was the last one? Final word. Final word. Um, My shameless plug is follow me on Twitter, at Tim B. Healy, A-T-A-L-E-Y, and read all of our stuff at newsday.com slash Mets. Big shout out to Newsday. Um, my, My prediction is, well, as I wrote for Newsday in my official season preview, I, I, I expect the Mets to be in the thick of things wild card wise. So uh, a playoff bid is well within the range of possibility for them. They just need some things to go their way, especially in the bullpen. Um, and then the last one was final word. Um, you know, I sort of alluded to it earlier, but over the weekend and this week and looking forward to tomorrow night and having baseball games that count on TV and then Friday where I'm going to be at one, uh, I'm just really excited that baseball back. It's been a weird and bad few months for everybody, uh, hopefully more weird than bad. Um, so uh, really excited to be back at the ballpark regularly. And I, I also – I'm not, I don't want to say confident, but I'm really hoping. I, I think it's definitely possible that they can pull off the season and play to completion. So, fingers crossed that happens. Fingers crossed. And I will take it away with my final word uh, to everyone out there listening. Be safe and healthy. And uh, baseball is back. It was nice to have a feeling of, of actual American summer uh, by watching some baseball over the weekend, albeit with the uh, the Yankees beating the Mets twice. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, regardless, it, it's nice to have baseball back, even with losing some of the most memorable games I've been to the Mets have lost, and that's just how it is. So uh, we wish farewell to all of you out there. Uh, let's get this baseball season underway. And as we always say, let's go Mets. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, Mike. Mike. Thanks, Rich. Thank you, guys. Thanks, everybody. Bye, Mets, Bill.